Lord of resurrection, what a gift it is to have such a visible and tangible reminder of your resurrection presence with us in Sabrina's life. And to hear the resurrection story last week from Sherry and Jared. And we can think of so many others as we look around this room. We are overjoyed and we are grateful. And yet we still, side by side, see plenty of evidence of death, sadness, and continuing attacks on places of worship. Even last week on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, our hearts grieve even as they rejoice. And it's hard for us to make sense of these two realities side by side. So we confess this difficulty to you. And we confess that our difficulty to see them existing side by side often leads us to doubt one of them. And so we ask, Lord of resurrection life, that you would remind us again that while death still exists, it does not have final say. Would you resurrect us to new life in hope with you? Would you make us to be people who are motivated and energized by a very different force than the world around us? We ask this because we know it is already what you want to do in us, and we are grateful. We pray that as we hear your word tonight, you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive and to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are uh, first grade through fifth grade, we invite you to go now downstairs to the neighborhood children's ministry area, and you can follow Pastor Hope. She is there in the back. And uh, the rest of you, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Uh, We have some friends who have Bibles. If you need a Bible for this evening, just raise your hand. Somebody will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, you can just keep it as your own. If you just need to borrow it, you can do that. But we're going to read out of two places. We're going to read out of two places in uh, in the Scriptures today. Uh, We're going to read the Gospel text, and we're going to read the New Testament text. So uh, I invite you to turn your Bibles to to John chapter 20, starting with verse 19. And then I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, starting with verse 27. Put your thumb or your finger in there. And I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. The text will be on the wall for us as well. So hear the word of the Lord for us this evening on this second Sunday in the season of Easter. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said as he spoke. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy and they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. 
Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you will have life by the power of his name. I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 5, starting with verse 27, and hear the word of the Lord. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, He said, instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him, and you want to make us responsible for his death. But Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. And nearly every sermon I've ever heard on this text, in every sermon the spotlight is shining on the guy that we know as Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas has this rich history. He's seen as a villain by some, but he's seen as a hero by others. He even has a gospel. I don't know if you know this. He even has a gospel named after him, the Gospel of Thomas. Now, you won't find the Gospel of Thomas in your Bible. It was one of those ancient writings that the early church rejected because it had some heretical beliefs. You could say that Thomas was a heretic. or You could say that Thomas was a hero. I think it's funny how we focus on Thomas altogether. Because in reality, in the larger story of Jesus of Nazareth, he's just a footnote. He's really a shadow. He's a a supporting actor only there to highlight the real star of the show. But but we focus on Thomas, and I think the reason that we focus on Thomas is because we see ourselves in in Thomas' life. We see ourselves as Thomas. We are Thomas. And, and, and we really, we really like ourselves. That's why we put ourselves in the text. We really like ourselves. In fact, I'm one of my favorite people. <laughs> Call it selfishness or egocentrism or narcissism or, or just a, a sense of self-focus. Whatever the reason, Frankly, our over-focused attention on Thomas reflects our over-focused attention that we put on on ourselves. And in this huge universe, this vast cosmological dynamic, what we might call the greater great or, or the more real reality, we're just like Thomas, supporting actors who are really there to soak up all the glory of the real star of the show. I think that's why we like Thomas so much. So it's probably important that we actually look at this story. 
Now, just a few hours earlier, on, e- on Easter Sunday, we talked about this, but on uh, just a few hours earlier, before this event happened, in the wee hours of the morning, Mary, the first apostle, accidentally backed into the risen Christ. Now, it was an accident on her part, but he stood there letting her back into him on purpose. And when she realized who he was, her eyes refocused. And when she realized who he was, she grabs a hold of him. And not being able to believe what she's seen, she places a a death grip on him. No pun intended. She places a death grip on him. And she wants to hang on to Jesus for dear life. But tells her, "Don't, don't grab onto me. Don't take a hold of me. Because I have not yet ascended to my father and your father to my God and your God. That's kind of a strange thing that Jesus says. Now, a lot of questions have been asked about what he really meant in this statement. Some want to say that Jesus' body wasn't ready to be touched, like he's some sort of of post-resurrection ghost or something. But that's not it. All of the disciples and all of the first century leaders, all the forefathers who saw the resurrected Christ, claimed that Jesus had a bodily resurrection. He was no ghost. This, this phrase, don't grab a hold of me because I've not yet ascended to my father and your father, my God and your God. It's a strange line. But it helps if you look at the line like Jesus is, um, I, I don't know, like he's giving something wise, a, a wise nugget to us. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi would do or Mr. Miyagi would do. You know, this, these guys with their wisdom and their otherworldly points of view if you, if you look at it that way, you, you might understand that Jesus is saying, you always, always want to hold on to the way things are. You always want to hold on to your own perspective, and, and you always want to hang on to your expectations of me. But I got to tell you, this is post-resurrection, and that's not the way it's going to be anymore. Which is probably why anyone who ran into the risen Christ found that to be just terrifying. You know, there hasn't been one uh, thing in my life with Jesus that has been easy. Not one thing in my life where Jesus is concerned has been easy. I'll let you know it's all been good. It's been really good, but it's never, never been easy. And I think that sometimes that's what people are looking for. The gospel made easy. Maybe that's what Thomas was looking for. And I think when they hear about the resurrected Christ, this is why the disciples decide to run and hide. They begin to realize that the gospel is never easy. The crucifixion shows them that. Jesus tried to tell them over and over again. He said, you follow me and it will cost you. Death will overcome you. But they couldn't listen. But now they've heard it. And there they are on this Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, and they're there in the evening after Mary, the first apostle, had seen the risen Christ there in the dark of the morning. And now they're in the dark of the evening, and the disciples are gathered in this house with the doors locked because they were afraid, the text tells us, that the Jews would come and, that the Jews would come and get them and do what they had done to Jesus of Nazareth. The Sabbath is over, but the anger and the hostility of those who had crucified Jesus is, was not over. And, and it's evening now, and it's the first Easter Sunday, and they are terrified, and they, they hide behind locked doors. 
I've been thinking about that theme all week long. Locked doors. We, we love things that lock. You know, when I was in the eighth grade, my very first mountain bike was stolen. I mowed for two summers for that mountain bike. My friend Andy at the bike shop says that there is a very special place in hell for bike thieves. I, I want to believe that Andy is right. We use locks. And we lock things up to keep things in order. We use locks because locks secure us. They protect our stuff. They keep us safe from the outside. They keep the ones we love safe. Locks come in a variety of different forms. And they, what they do is they help us to maintain control. And I think this is what the disciples were doing. Jesus of Nazareth was a victim of terror, and now terror consumes them, not just because they were worried that those who had killed Jesus were coming after them, but then they heard that Christ had risen from the dead. And they remember that all of them, every single one of them, betrayed him. And having to face the risen Christ is terror on a whole new level. So there the disciples were, They weren't wanting to be seen, be caught, be found out. Those doors were locked so the Jews couldn't get in. I'm pausing here so you can catch the irony. They locked the doors because they didn't want the Jews to get in. Do you see the irony? The the disciples locked the doors because they feared the Jews. And then Israel's Messiah. The risen Christ, the Jewish Jesus surpasses all the boundaries they put up, all the roadblocks, the padlocks, the force fields that they put up, and he establishes his peace and his presence among them. And there they saw him. He was there, face, body, hands, and side. They were trying to stop the Jews, but before they knew it, there is a Jew in their midst, but not only a Jew, the Jew, the head honcho, the king, God in flesh, he's among them, and no one wants to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember in Star Wars how Darth Vader evokes this fear simply by his presence? I imagine that's what's happening in this text. The risen Christ we learn, does whatever the risen Christ wants to do, and he will get at us regardless of what we do to try to stop him, and sometimes that just terrifies us. We spend time locking doors behind us all the time, and we do it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes our old rebellions lock those doors, or bad decisions, a wrecked past, sexual addiction, an abusive relationship, drinking or substance abuse locks the doors, busyness locks the doors, pretending that we're really important in front of our friends locks the doors, anger, greed, a certain expectation, self-loathing, jealousy, disappointment, poverty, discouragement, paralyzing fear, chronic pain, political agendas, learning disabilities can lock the door. And I think that John is talking about doubting. Doubt locks the door. He's talking about doubting Thomas to show us something about ourselves. And that is we are always trying to find ways to lock out the risen Christ. I think it would be good if we took some time to consider the ways in which we 
do lock out the risen Christ. You know, Jesus said that when we love our neighbor, we're actually loving him. When we give food or drink or clothing, we're not only serving the least of these. It's not charity. It's not just, oh, I feel bad for that person. We are actually unlocking the doors and we're inviting Jesus in. We say that we want to be good and useful neighbors. We said that just a few minutes ago. Do we really want to be good, useful neighbors? Is that really what we want to do? We like the gospel. It's, it's been good news for us. But do we act in such a way that it's actually good news for everyone? We say that we want to not just take up space, but we want to make space. Is that just church talk or is it gospel talk? Because one thing we know is this, gospel talk is never cheap and it's never easy. Frankly, we know it's gospel when it's good. And we know it's gospel when it's good for every single person. And, and, and as wonderful as it is to say that, that we want to walk the walk together, are we ready to do that as a church Jesusly? What will we do to continue to make space for these families and the 50 plus children that we have that are packed in like sheep downstairs? What, what will we do to make space for our neighbors who speak Spanish as their first language? How, how do we make adjustments as a congregation? How do we make adjustments so that others are convinced that the report is, is out? God has been considering them and the news is good. Most of the time, what we do is we spend time maintaining our locks. We create a world that is a, that surrounds locks. It, it starts out like this. Leashes for our dogs, and in some cases, for some of you, your children. <laughs> Alarm systems, gates, there are fences, both invisible and 10-foot fences. Property lines, doors, bolts, chains, padlocks, 911 calls, jail cells. There are gun laws or gun rights, safety training, face recognition, thumbprints, ID protection, insurance, zero tolerance policies, walls. We built a world around locks. Several years ago, I was watching a show on MSNBC called uh, Lifestyles of the Super Rich. And in one episode, these two billionaires bought two halves of the same island. One bought it as a retreat center where he could get away from everybody, and the other used, used his side to host massive parties. Now, when the parties disturbed, when the parties of the second part disturbed the neighbor of the first part, the first part decided to sue the, the, the other neighbor. Well, that annoyed the party neighbor, so he bought military-grade speakers to point to the other side of the island, and like billionaire Hatfields and McCoys, these two spent the next few years immersed in a feud. And and I was so like taken back when I hear, heard the narrator report the story when she finished with this line. I thought the reason to become a billionaire, I thought the reason a person became a billionaire is so that you could move to a place where you never ever had to deal with neighbors again and you could live in isolation forever. Eventually, 
Maintaining our locks keeps us from others, and it puts us in a place of complete isolation. And that is one of the ways that we keep out the resurrected Christ. You know, after 9-11, home alarm companies and gun shops made a fortune. You couldn't tell the people that these things could have never stopped a terrorist who came to arm with a plane. But people are frightened, and they'll do just about anything to lock the doors and to feel secure. Which should tell us something about how we really want this relationship with this living Christ to go. And what he does should tell us exactly how he wants this relationship to go. You know, in this text, he walks right into the isolated room. And in our lives, he walks right into the isolated rooms through the locks we've created. And there is nothing, nothing we can do to, to stop him. And frankly, if we're not careful and mindful, the fact of the matter is, is we look for ways to lock out the resurrected Christ. And disciples do that all the time. In fact, it goes like this. We get together and then we get organized and we set up a committee and we buy insurance. We write a policy. Then we call ourselves a church so we can determine which group to keep out next. My friend Dan grew up in the 1960s in the South during the civil rights movement. And he said as a boy, he recalls hearing a group of older men, board members, establish a task force to make an agreement to protect the church in case any of them come to try and visit. In fact, the locks looked like car trunks full of shotguns. No black people allowed. They make trouble is what they said. You know what we call that? A militia. A militia is a kind of lock, and like, locks like this lead to violence. It's no wonder Jesus said that hell had locks, because our paranoia, which leads to these kinds of locks, then lead to this kind of violence, and violence is hell. In New Mexico, a group is standing on the border, making arrests and detaining border crossers, many of whom are simply children and vulnerable women who are thirsty and hungry. Our, our commitment has been to lock up and lock out the risen Christ and others out with him has been, frankly, for the church, a form of our discipleship. You know, most denominational conventions spend time trying to determine which qualifications a person needs to be included into membership. And most act as if they believe the sacraments are not a means of grace that open the door to life transformation through inclusion, but they actually think that, that the sacraments are an end result of transformation, meaning you do not get to come until you change your ways. And those at those big conventions who have a seat at the table argue, they argue about issues like the legitimacy of women or the elderly or youth, criminals, addicts, or non-English speakers. They talk about those who play cards, or those who attend the theater, or wear jewelry, or dress immodestly, those with same-sex attraction, or those who have different ideas, or those who just come asking questions. And, and most of the time, decisions are made so that individuals or people groups are given impossible standards to live by, so therefore conformity is an impossibility. And you could never join our ranks. 
Churches spend a lot of time trying to figure out who they should lock out of their buildings. Some come equipped with unbelievable alarm systems worth millions of dollars. Some, like Notre Dame, are priceless, and I get it. But we frame our whole lives around locks and our whole discipleship around locks. Joel Osteen's church was on the negative end of the social, uh, social media firestorm when when they locked the doors during Hurricane Harvey in Houston. You know, it's interesting. Because if we lean into this text and we really look at it, we have to face the fact that no matter what we do, and no matter who we try to block, And no matter who we try to lock out, the resurrected Christ cannot be locked out. Our prejudice, our discrimination, even our anti-Semitism won't keep the king from doing what the king will do. And and that, my friends, for us who are disciples that try to to lock out what God is doing, it's not easy news to hear, but I'll tell you what, it is good news. Last week, I heard the story of a young pastor that served an an older dying congregation that worshipped in this old urban building. The church sat on this corner that was thriving after World War II. But after integration of the public school system, people felt like they they needed to lock their doors. And their once safe neighborhood was now perceived to be unsafe. And they needed to then lock their cars and their houses. And they started locking their church. This church would talk about the rich history they had, and they boasted about the glory days for decades. It was once a flagship church in their denomination. The reputation and the impact went worldwide, and for years, parishioners told stories when there was a packed house, and there were hundreds of ministries, a large choir, a worldwide mission outreach. There were massive children's musicals, and there were creative programs. Over the years, membership started to decline, so the church went through this evolution of evangelistic efforts to revive that which was dying, but still no one came. And then the final lock happened when people decided to move into the suburbs in search of a safer school and a safer neighborhood. Now the church just stood there alone among this, this row of boarded up and vandalized buildings And year after year, more and more people left their church, left this church to go seek their fortunes in another part of town. Now the glory days were gone, and the only thing this little congregation had was the last days. So discussions about closing the church were in order. Just a remnant remained there, and even those were drive-ins that didn't live anywhere close to the neighborhood. And as the neighborhood continued to grow worse and crime continued to go up, this little beautiful church had people that started to break into it on a regular basis. Week by week, they had to put on locks on the doors as they continued to have to be fixed and windows had to be replaced. And exasperated, the young pastor met with the church board to discuss what should be done. Things were so discouraging to her, she could see no hope. And it was about that time that this man in his 80s, there at the church board, raised his hand. And he gave a speech. He said, Pastor, for years we've been praying that the Lord would bring us back to the glory days. And when it didn't, when it didn't look like we thought it was going to look like, we got discouraged. So some of us left. 
Later, we tried to start programs. Those failed. More left. Over time, this church has, no, has had no plan and no future. The only valuable thing that we've had is this building itself. So because our money is running out, this is, and this is the only thing that we have left, we started protecting it as if it was our only asset. But we can't protect it any longer. And the pastor said it was at that moment that she knew what was coming next. A motion to close down that church. And the old man continued, Pastor, this building is the only thing that we have to protect, and I don't think we can protect it any longer. And I'm not sure that we should be trying to protect this church. That's not our job. I'm not sure if she needs protecting. So it seems to me, Pastor, that over these decades, we've gotten a real bad habit of always trying to do this nonsensical thing, nonsensical things to bring people in, but they were only people that we wanted. And that didn't work anyway. But I'll tell you what. I've been looking around, he says. And it seems to me that no matter what we do, Jesus Christ keeps dragging in the people that he wants here. They keep trying to break into the church. And I make a motion. It, it seems that we cannot stop them. And I make a motion that we unlock all these doors and find a way to make a home for these people. And before she knew it, she said, all five of those 80-year-olds on this board raised their hand to second that emotion. That motion, it was decided, second that emotion. It was decided, the motion carried. And that board, most of those old people that had one foot in the grave, responded to the dynamic activity of the resurrected Christ by turning their church building into a dynamic home for people. And before they knew it, the house in worship was packed once again. I got it. I got to admit it. Most of the time I'm like Thomas and I see myself as Thomas, always doubting, always without hope, always the glass half, uh, half full, always self-protecting, never wanting to get hurt. And that is not how the risen Christ works. He is not limited by locks or bars, barriers, walls, fences, lashes, crosses, or graves. That little church thought that their glory days were at an end. And then they learned that our end is actually God's new beginning. Just when we think it's time to close shop and put up the for sale sign, the next thing you know, he comes in, flips on the open sign, and it starts blinking for everybody. So I want you to beware. You cannot stop the in Christ. One day this woman walked up to a chaplain of a major university and she said, chaplain, may I have a word with you? And he said, yes. And then uh, that's when she started to berate him. She said, I sent my son here 15 years ago and you met with the parents telling them about the faith programs and the classes that were for students coming into this university. And when my son graduated from this university, he completely dropped out of church, walked away from his faith, and he doesn't believe anymore. And I want to let you know that I blame you. Well, that chaplain looked at that woman and he said, now you look here. I want you to go home. And I want you to tell that boy to look over his shoulder because there is a God who is coming after him. Matthew says that even the gates of hell and the locks that are on that gate cannot stop the ones who are empowered by the resurrected Christ. He comes forth bursting through those gates. And in Acts chapter 5, the apostles 
They were arrested and put in prison, but an angel of the Lord released them from that jail and to bring them out. And when the officials came with their forensic methods to figure out how they busted out, they couldn't figure it out because the locks had not been tampered with. And I think that's why the apostles in Acts ran back to town there in the middle of the, ran back to the temple there in the middle of the city. They wanted to share the good news of a God who is going to get what God wants no matter what we do. The God of our fathers raised Jesus Christ from the dead. They said, they preached this message. You need to know that the God of our fathers raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember when you guys tried to kill them? Ha ha, he wins. That was the ultimate lock. You thought it was going to be death and not even that worked because nothing keeps Jesus in if he wants to be out and nothing keeps him out if he wants to be in, not even death itself. And Jesus Christ, just when you think it's all over, just when you think it's the end, just when you think that there is no hope past this, well, that is God's new beginning. And it comes in the resurrected Christ. No lock can hold him back. No wall can stop him. No barrier will prevent God, the God we see and know in Jesus Christ from getting what he wants. You better watch over your shoulders, my friends, because there is a God who is coming after you. And this for us on this second Sunday in the season of resurrection that we call Easter is very good news. I want to invite my friends who are helping us uh, at the Lord's table. And I want to remind you, I say these words every week, but listen to what I'm saying today, even with all the distractions. You know why we come to the Lord's table? It's because it's been offered to us. When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that this is an open table. All who, are welcome, all who are open to the transforming work of God in Christ are welcome. Everyone who is open, we use the word open on purpose. Everyone who is open to believe in this good work and wants to receive the grace that comes from God is welcome to his table. And the story goes like this. Jesus and his generosity actually breaks through into our lives. And on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took and he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood. It, my blood has been poured out for you and whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. There is no stopping this Christ from doing what this Christ wants to do. And so we too come to this open table where we, where we are received by the one who pursues us, who will not be limited by our locks. We even say these words. We want no barriers. We're going to make this as easy as we possibly can. No locks, no barriers, no walls. You are invited to this table. And we want no locks and no barriers in our walls, so we make it easy by serving gluten-free bread and wine that is non-alcoholic, so anyone who wants to come 
who has heard the words of the risen Christ and met him can come to this table. Just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come out the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles, come to these, one of these stations, come to these servers, and I invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We say it every week, we do not take communion here, we receive it because it is a gift. So I want you to come and receive this gift and know that the resurrected Christ has been seeking after you. So when you are ready, you may come and down this aisle, allow one of these to allow these servers to uh, say some words to you, listen to what they have to say, then dip the bread into the cup, and then you may eat it. Friends, know that the resurrected Christ is coming after you. You better look over your shoulder. And there is no lock, no barrier, no wall, no nothing that stops God from getting what God wants. And he wants you. So I invite you, this table of our Lord. Come when you are ready, friends.